Well, if you haven't found your way to Ruth chapter 3, I would invite you to do so. Turning to what many would say is the most beautiful and uh, one of the most moving short stories ever recorded. And you'll notice what I said there, not merely written, but recorded. Because this isn't a story that was sort of uh, thought up of in, it's not the, the, the figment of an author's imagination. This is an, it's a historical event that took place in an obscure town with seemingly obscure people that were seeking to navigate the tragedies of life. Uh, we've said all along that this story uh, really is, it's, a, it's two stories. That there is a human story that's meant to capture our attention. But there's a hidden story that's meant to take our breath away. Well, that's going to continue in chapter 3. As John referenced earlier, one of the main themes of this letter is uh, this, the Hebrew word, hased. And it's this idea of a covenant loyalty, a steadfast kindness. Um, it's this uh, remarkable display of love that we really see glimpses of in the human relationships that are taking place in this story. But they're merely glimpses. They're not ultimate. And they're meant to point us to the ultimate source and the ultimate expression of such a covenant, loyal kind of love. And that would be the love that God has for his people. And so the, hidden, uh, the, the human story is what we're seeing unfold between Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. And the hidden story is what we understand the Bible to be teaching about God's love for his people. And so when we stop to consider Love, and we stop to consider love in human relationships, I wonder what you think about. Maybe you think that love is all kind of in the category of romance and laughter, happiness, joy, and certainly those are characteristics and marks, attributes of love. But if you've loved long enough, you also know that there's a difficult side of love. Some would even say a dark side of love. And love is difficult because it involves loss. And in a broken world, the greater the love, the greater the risk for loss. Some of you, even this week, praying, preparing for this sermon, praying through the directory, thinking about the stories that are found and even the faces that are staring at me this morning. And just knowing some of you are well acquainted with the difficult side of love. And some of you perhaps are even at a crossroad. Maybe you're at a crossroad this morning because of some unpleasant experiences that you've had that now you're asking yourself, can I ever love again? Is it even worth it? How do I love when the risk of loss is so great? 
I think as I considered this perspective this week, it gave me a greater appreciation for, for Ruth's side of this story. You see, we've been, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been telling this story through really the lens of Naomi. But I thought this week, what about through the lens of Ruth? Ruth fell in love with a Jewish man who had recently lost his dad. What seems to be 10 years of infertility, only to be culminated by watching her husband and her brother-in-law die. Ruth is well acquainted with the difficult side of love. She understands the loss. In this agonizing display of Hesed, this loyal love, she decides to go back to Bethlehem with Naomi. But for her to make the decision to go back to Bethlehem with Naomi would mean that she has to say goodbye to her country, to her friends, to her family, to everything that was home to her. And so Ruth arrives in Bethlehem having lost everyone she has ever loved except for Naomi. And as she seeks to care for Naomi, we see that God leads her to Boaz's field and for several weeks, Boaz provides. He provides graciously for Ruth and Naomi's need for food. Praise be to God, it's a time of plenty, but this is what the text tells us, that barley season is coming to a close. And the looming reality is beginning to grow darker and darker over the fact that their future is very unsecure. They don't have food. They don't have family. And so what will unfold? Will there be a future for a family? Can Ruth even put herself out in, to love another in light of all the loss that she's experienced? And what is it that's going to unfold in the hidden story that's meant to serve our breath away in Ruth chapter 3? Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to graciously attend the preaching of his word so that we can be built up beholding Christ in and through his word. Our holy God, we come to you, we come to your word, we ask that you would allow us to behold wonderful things in and through your word. We ask, us, or we ask that you would allow us to, to rightly understand what's happening in Ruth chapter 3. And we beg for right understanding, not merely so that we can win theological debates and have Bible trivia trophies stored away somewhere. We ask for understanding so that we can live rightly for you and that we can respond appropriately to the great God who loves with Hesed. And so for that to happen, I pray that you, by your spirit, would attend the preaching of your word and you would accomplish more with this sermon than is humanly possible. And I pray this because I'm needy and I pray this because we long to hear from you. And we pray this because you're worthy. And we pray it in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. 
As we've walked over the last two weeks through the first and second chapters of Ruth, we have said, and just kind of working our way through this, this short book, that each chapter serves as kind of like an act. And as the curtain has risen and fallen at different points, at the beginning and the end of the acts, we begin to just see and we're invited to understand the drama that's unfolding in and through this book. Well, this morning we hit Act 3. And we notice that in Act 3, which is in Chapter 3, we'll notice three scenes. And each, each of the scenes will revolve and surround conversations. Scene 1 is a conversation between Ruth and Naomi. Scene 2 is a conversation between Ruth and Boaz. Scene 3 is a conversation with Ruth and Naomi. At the end of chapter 2, we were informed that Ruth has returned from the field. And she's returned from the field having worked and gleaned for a long time. And in God's kindness, he has provided for Ruth and Naomi through through his choice servant, Boaz. As Boaz is giving, uh, being immensely generous with providing food and sustenance for these widows. As... Ruth returns, she begins to tell her mother-in-law, Naomi, a little bit just about what's been happening and whose field she's been gleaning in. And we said last week that we began to see that hope begins to emerge and fill Naomi's heart as she hears that it's the field of Boaz. Naomi's joy and hope begins to rise, Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. And so the whole book is really set up around two massive problems facing these two widows, a lack of food and a lack of family. God in his kindness has provided the food, but that may be coming to a close because of the end of the harvest. And there really is no prospect of family until the end of chapter 2. When we hear about, ah, Boaz is not just a godly man, he's also a kinsman redeemer. We said last week that a kinsman redeemer was... Uh, one of the nearest adult male relatives that would be responsible for the well-being of a relative who was facing a crisis. And this is really spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 25, where we see a relative being charged with marrying and caring for a widow of a brother who has died childless. And so this provision in the law is meant to ensure that there is both provision and prodigy, that there's food and family. And if Ruth chapter 2 highlighted Naomi's, or highlighted Ruth's initiative to care for Naomi, Ruth chapter 3 will highlight Naomi's initiative to care for Ruth. And so let's look. Scene 1 in Act 3. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. And so this should come as no surprise to us, as we have seen throughout, that Naomi has a heart that is seeking to care for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. 
And so she begins even this chapter by saying, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? That phrase, seek security, would be, should I not find you a husband that would be able to ensure a future for you? Commentator Daryl Block says, the place of rest or security speaks of the tranquility and the security that a woman in Israel longed for and expected to find in the home of a loving husband. And so it's interesting, she begins chapter 3 really with two rhetorical questions. She knows the answer to, shall I not seek security for you? Of course she should. That's what a good mother-in-law would do for her widowed daughter-in-law. Of course she knew that Boaz was the kinsman with whose maids Ruth was with. And what that lets us know, the, again, the author is letting us know that there is a plan. Naomi has been thinking about a way in which to secure a future for Ruth. She has a plan, and that plan would include the reality that it is the end of barley harvest season. Boaz would be winnowing on the threshing floor that night. Far be it from a country line dance, winnowing on the threshing floor means throwing the mixture of chaff and grain and straw and so uh, into the wind by the means of a, of a fork with large teeth. That's the technical definition. Throwing the mixture of chaff, grain, and straw into the wind by the means of a fork with large teeth. So the idea was that the owner, the workers, the harvesters would go through after, after harvesting, they would then begin winnowing and they would take this the pitchfork, and they would throw everything up into the air, and the chaff then would be taken away. It would go the highest. The straw then would sort of go middle. It would be swept away, and the grain, which was the heaviest, would fall to the ground, and there would be a collection then of the grain that was being harvested. This was normally done in the evening because of the steady breeze at night. It was better suited for a consistent wind than the gusty, heated winds throughout the day. And so she begins by saying, I have a plan. Remember Boaz? Well, what's the plan? Well, let's look at the rest of scene one, three through five. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes. I believe the ESV there is a better translation where it would say instead of best clothes, it would say put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, all that you say, I will do. If we're not careful, we miss everything that is scandalous about this plan. Everything that is risky about this plan. Naomi encourages Ruth to bathe and to put uh, perfume on and to put on her, her garment, her cloak, 
it would be helpful for us to realize this is not some, hey, go put better clothes on, clean up, you're embarrassing the family. This is more of what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David's son has died. And after a period of mourning, there reaches a time where David now says, it's time for me to go into the temple. And this is what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And so I understand what Naomi is saying to Ruth here is less of go and put on better clothes and go and take a shower because you smell bad and more of the season of mourning is coming to an end. She's lost her husband. It would have been appropriate and necessary for her to go through a season of mourning. And that has come to an end. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, is encouraging her It's now time to begin to move on and to put on your cloak, not just your favorite outfit for the night, but to put on your cloak for protection and for warmth. And the plan then is to go to the threshing floor. The threshing floor is not a place where widowed women would go to hang out. If we were to read Hosea chapter 9, we would find that, in fact, Sadly, a lot of immorality happened on the threshing floor. But she is to go to the threshing floor and she is to keep her eyes. She's, she's, she's to hide. She's to not be seen and she's to keep her eyes on Boaz. And when Boaz has finished eating and drinking, and I don't believe this to mean that once Boaz gets drunk then put the plan into motion. I understand this to be, this is the celebration of a harvest season coming to an end, oh, right after a famine had plagued the land. There would, this would be a joyous occasion recounting God's provision for his people. Once Boaz had finished eating and drinking there on the threshing floor and he would fall asleep why in the world would he fall asleep on the threshing floor? Because owners of the field knew that thieves would show up and would seek to steal the grain. And so you would, it was not uncommon for those that were winnowing and owners to be found sleeping, protecting their harvest. And while he's asleep, you are to uncover his feet. There's a lot of ink that has been spilled about what in the world, uncover his feet means. Uh, there are a few places in the Bible where it does carry sort of this sexual overtone and connotation. But more often than not, it doesn't carry that connotation. And I, as, I, as I'm looking, as I've read way too much about what this could mean this week, and I step back and I just take a look from Ruth 1 to Ruth 4. I don't believe this is Naomi trying to put a sexually charged plan into place. 
I don't believe this is Ruth going and, and sort of saying, everything that I have been about up until this moment, I'm going to set aside. I'm then going to act really promiscuous for a few hours, and then I will resume honoring the Lord. I don't believe that's what's happening here. I believe this is an attempt uh, to both make aware her intentions while at the same time doing so in a manner that would be secretive. I believe this is an attempt to wake him quietly. Who among us hasn't known the sensation of the covers falling off of our feet and being awakened by the frigid feeling of your toes? But I believe it was symbolic of what she desired. It it wasn't merely that she was going to go lay, uncover his feet, and then lay there exposed. In the uncovering of his feet, she would have been covered. So I, I understand this to be symbolic of what it is that Naomi desires for Ruth and what it is that Ruth should desire from Boaz. To be covered in his protection and in his care and in his love. And Naomi's plan, which again, it just seems to be getting a little bit more of a reach and a little bit more of a reach. And so put on your best garment, take a shower, put on perfume, go to the threshing floor, but don't get caught. Make sure you watch him and then make sure you don't miss where he goes and lies down, right? There's no, there's not night lights that are on. It would have been very, very dark. Do not get the wrong guy, Ruth. Right? And so all of this is unfolding. And I, I just, in this interaction, in this conversation, I just see maybe Ruth leaning in to understand, okay, this is the plan. And then when you go, and when he is dead asleep, find his feet, uncover his feet, and you lay down right there next to him. And then when he wakes up, do whatever he says. I just, I put myself in Ruth's shoes this week. I'm like, what? That's the best you got? Just do what he says? There is all manner of risk in this plan. And the author wants you and I to be aware of the risk. There are so many things that could go wrong. And because of all of the sexual connotations and overtones that this could have, the whole thing could be misinterpreted by Boaz. And then if Boaz was to sort of say, whoa, 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 you're coming on to me. I was just trying to be nice to you, to provide for you. Boaz begins to talk around the town, and guess what? Ruth has no future. But not just that. She could have been, she could have been spied on. She could have been caught spying on Boaz. She could have been exposed. Her reputation, her plan, all of it. She could have been harmed en route. She could have been harmed while waiting. She could have been harmed on her way back. What if he mistakens her for a thief? Dead of the night, waking up. That feeling that somebody is staring at you in the dark. Right? I mean, I literally asked myself so many questions. What if... (laughs) What if Boaz is just a heavy sleeper and he didn't wake up? (laughs) 
And Naomi doesn't have an answer. She just says, and when he wakes up, whatever he tells you, do it. She has no assurance to offer as to what Boaz will do, how it will be, how it will be perceived. There is a suspense that is building in the story that you and I are meant to feel. The risk is great. And I do want to say there are some, and there have been many sermons by faithful brothers who have depicted Naomi from chapter 3 to be a pushy, scheming mother-in-law who deserves criticism for this sexually promiscuous plan. And while I believe that her plan is far from perfect, and it involves so much risk, I understand her to be a caring mother-in-law who's seeking to provide and to give Ruth a future even if it meant losing her ticket for a future. You see, the kinsman redeemer, that really should have been for Naomi. And Naomi is saying, I'm willing to give you the one who will redeem this family so that you can have what I won't have. And with that, the curtain falls on scene one, and it rises for scene two. Scene two we find in verses six through 15. And so she went down to the threshing floor, and she did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of the grain and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. The plan is unfolding. Verse, verse 9, or verse 8. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and he bent forward and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. Verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. Period. It, it should have ended there if she was staying to the script. But it doesn't end there. Ruth begins to say things that Naomi said, no, no, no. Naomi just said, you do what he says. But in the moment, Ruth makes her intentions known. Rest of verse 9. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. She is honest about her intentions. What we've just heard in verse 9 is Ruth asking Boaz to marry her. Ruth has just asked Boaz to marry her. Again, Daniel Block, commentator, says, the idiom she uses may be puzzling to the modern reader, but there was no question about its meaning to the Israelite. She was requesting that Boaz marry and protect and provide and assume responsibility for her rest and her security as her husband. Do you remember what we read in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12? Boaz is praising Ruth for her character. And Boaz says to Ruth, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. It's interesting what Ruth is doing now. Ruth is asking Boaz. It's as if she says, do you remember what you prayed and the blessing that you prayed over me? She says, now I'm asking you to be the answer to that prayer. I'm asking you to be the one through which God will provide a covering. And he'll do it through you. The vulnerability of Ruth 
in chapter 3 is meant to offend us. It's a woman proposing to a man. Didn't happen. It's a young woman proposing to an older man. Didn't happen. It's a poor woman proposing to a wealthy man. It didn't happen in this day. It's a servant proposing to her boss. Was unthinkable. And perhaps most unthinkable of all is that it was a Moabite proposing to an Israelite. The enemies of God proposing to one who was a part of the children and the people of God. I'm thinking about this. I'm just thinking all Ruth has known has been lost thus far in this story. And she reaches this point where she's willing to risk her body. She's willing to risk her reputation. She's willing to risk her future. She's willing to risk her heart by this most audacious and scandalous of proposals. I just think Ruth has experienced so much loss. How in the world can she come and yet again put herself out there so as to love? Where in the world does she get the courage? Like what inspired this kind of confidence? It it, it certainly wasn't the plan. The plan's not even, I mean, it's just, It didn't have an ending. It wasn't her self-confidence. She doesn't approach Boaz kind of showcasing her beauty. It's in the middle of the night. Where Where was Ruth's confidence? She has nothing to offer when he asked her the question in verse 9, Who are you? And do you, did you catch her response? I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. You are a redeemer. Do you see what Ruth has just appealed to? The basis of any confidence that Ruth has to move forward in this plan, it's what she appeals to right here in verse 9. Ruth is coming to Boaz and she says, I'm not asking you to marry me because of who I am. I'm asking you to marry me because of who you are. You're the Redeemer, it's your character and your love. Boaz, it's you that I would be counting on. I'm placing my trust in your faithfulness to do the right thing, into your hands, believing that you will do the right thing. And at some level, in this this human story that's meant to capture our attention, we learn something about this hidden story, and we're given a picture of what true faith looks like. There's no plan B for Ruth. There's no escape plan. 
It is pure trust. This isn't blind faith. It's rooted in the character of the one that she is trusting in. For weeks, she has watched him. For weeks, she has heard him talk to others. For weeks, she has witnessed his joy in the Lord. She knew what type of man he was. He gave her confidence. And so she's able to go through with what seems to be a very risky plan. Because she's, she has faith in the character of the one to whom she's appealing to. It's, it's, it's really remarkable and it's unheard of. And perhaps just as remarkable is how Boaz responds in verses 10 and 11. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. And I can just imagine the relief. May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. Boaz hasn't misinterpreted. Boaz isn't going to take advantage. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence." Here's the beautiful thing about Boaz's response. If Boaz was legally obligated to do something, then the whole plan wouldn't be necessary. But the provision in the law was that the nearest relative had an obligation. And then as you begin to kind of get away from the nearest relative, that obligation lessened and lessened. He responds favorably to her, and he tells us why in verses 10 and 11. May you, be the, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than your first. He says, I will do this for you because I find you so incredibly attractive. No, that's not what he says. He says, I will do this for you because I find you so incredibly godly. It wasn't her physical beauty, but her true beauty that attracted Boaz to Ruth. She was very, very godly. And that made her, in the eyes of Boaz, very, very attractive. He commends her for this demonstration of hesed, covenant, loyalty, and love. He says, the first, the, the kind of loyalty that you showed to Naomi, this, this even surpasses that. You could have gone and chosen so many younger and other guys, but yet you are seeking to care for her. You're also seeking to do it in a way that upholds the law. And it really does. It's, it, just, it almost takes Boaz's breath away. She is indeed a worthy woman. Her covenant loyalty kind of love to Naomi has impressed and been well known all through the town there is this deeper, more substantive attract, attraction between Ruth and Boaz. And he agrees to spread his wings over Ruth. What a twist. She arrives in Bethlehem as a heartbroken, destitute widow. And all she has is a fervent love and a fierce loyalty to her mother-in-law, gleaning as a beggar. And now she has the promise of a redeemer to be a chosen bride. 
and then a complication. Verse 12. Now, it is true, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. And she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And then she went into the city. Boaz is a worthy man. So much so that he wants to honor the God who has put this law into place. And he realizes there is another relative who is closer, who maybe is even more deserving. How disorienting this must have been for Ruth to have hope fulfilled and then to have hope deferred. And yet Boaz assures Ruth that he will resolve the matter and that at the end of the day, she will be cared for. Verse 13, remain here. And if he will redeem you, then so be it. You will have provision. You will have prodigy. You will have food and you will have family. He sends her off in the morning with six measures of barley. Curtain falls. Scene two has ended. Scene three, curtain rises. Verses 16 through 18. When she came home to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? I can imagine, I don't know how much Ruth would have slept that night. I can imagine that Naomi probably didn't sleep much either. When she came home, she said to her, oh, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she, Naomi, said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. She goes home, sees Naomi. Naomi just explodes with curiosity. Tell me what happened. She tells her all that Boaz has done, and the author draws attention to these six measures of barley. This seems to be some type of assurance of his, in, of, of his intention to resolve this matter. If you will recall, at the end of chapter 1, do you remember what, what Naomi says as she comes back to Bethlehem? Verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara." For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. It's as if Boaz is the instrument in the Lord's hands reminding her, the Lord is filling your empty hands again. And Naomi, what you've not known is that even in the lowest point of the valley, he's been working this plan out. Like a good mother-in-law, Naomi says, you wait for him. Verse 18. And the curtain falls on Act 3. 
So having journeyed through this passage, what relevance could this story from so long ago have for you and I today? For applications from Ruth chapter 3. Number one, trace God's good hand at work in your life. If you've come the last two weeks, then perhaps you are saying, didn't he say that last week? And didn't he say that the week before? And I did. And in large part, I'm saying it again because I believe the text is calling us to this. But I also know Three weeks from hearing it the first time, I wonder how faithful you've been at doing it. We need to be reminded. God did not forget Naomi. And just go through. Go through and read this book in one setting and and just watch. Watch all the provisions that he speaks of, particularly about the food. In every chapter, there's this reference to his provision for them. God has not forgotten Naomi. Naomi has misinterpreted his silence. She has misinterpreted the trials. She has misinterpreted the season of difficulty. At no point would she say, God, you're not in control But almost at every point since coming back to Bethlehem, she would say, God, you are in control, but you are not good in the control that you are exercising. And yet yet again, another reminder. He is good in all his ways. And even when all we see is the frowning providence behind it, There is a hidden smiling face for those who belong to him. And this just comes down to my experience doesn't believe it. The Bible tells me it's true. What will win out for you? What are the small ways that God is reminding you of his kindness? Trace his hidden hand at work in your life. Each and every day, how does he remind you that he has not forgotten you? Do you even pause to give him thanks for the ways in which he reminds you of this? And, and, and let's be clear, these assurances of the fact that he hasn't forgotten you, that doesn't eliminate the harsh realities of suffering. But it does remind us that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I would just encourage you, trace his good hand at work in your life, particularly during seasons of suffering. Don't allow your temporary circumstances to be bigger than the almighty, good, sovereign hand of God at work. Number two, take heart that God works through imperfect plans. Take heart that God works through imperfect plans. I mean, I I walk away from Ruth chapter 3 and I just, was this a wise plan? I, 
I have no idea. I, I don't even know how to answer that. But does God move through it? He does. And while I don't think this is license for us to, th- to throw caution to the wind and how we plan and how we prepare, I think it does give us the confidence that even our imperfect human plans can still be used by God to do good. As we step out to take gospel risks, seeking to do the next right thing, I just think about this even in our community groups, talking about evangelism. As you and I take steps of just, I want to be faithful, the plan for how you're going to do that, it may, it, it may not be the best plan. Don't wait for the best plan. Plan wisely, but then act faithfully. Act trustingly. Believe. Believe that, yes, not even your bad plans can thwart his good purposes. It's what, it's what we've talked about. Proverbs 19, 21. Though we plan our steps... He directs our paths. God is powerful enough to use your less than ideal plans. Aim at faithfulness and trust Him. And sometimes we can, I can get, I can get bogged down to just thinking, ah, oh, my plan is not good. I have to wait before I can be obedient. I have to wait until I can map out the plan. And God is just, he is under no illusions as to who he is getting on his team when he chose you. Right? I mean, this is what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is exactly what's happening. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's you. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. That's me. And he's chosen the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. That's us. Why? So that no man may boast before God. You have regret this morning because of imperfect plans from the past. Take responsibility. Learn from them. But God is big enough to redeem even less than ideal plans. And if we think he can't, then we're thinking on purely human terms and not considering the God who is good and sovereign overall. Third, pursue purity and integrity. Pursue purity and integrity. I don't, this is not a major theme throughout this book, but every chapter we are given a picture of just what a godly man looks like in Boaz. And we're given a picture of what a godly woman looks like in Ruth. And in thinking about purity and integrity, Purity and integrity, they have pleasures attached to them, right? Purity offers us deep, lasting pleasure that's rich, that's beautiful, that doesn't have regret. 
impurity offers us pleasures. It offers us momentary fleeting pleasures that are often followed by regret and shame and guilt. And this is what I know. I know that on the threshing floor on that night when it was pitch black and there was an opportunity for impurity, what kept them from that? It was the greater pleasure of knowing the goodness of God. It was the pleasure of purity. They chose the higher and better pleasure. The pure in heart, they will seek God. They had a clean conscience. They could leave with nothing to hide because there was nothing to be caught. God honors those who trust Him and His ways. You don't believe it? Come back next week to just see how God chose to honor Boaz and Ruth and how he upholds and preserves salvation, not just for them, but for his people. If you've failed at purity and integrity, I just want you to know that there is a God who is big enough to forgive you of it. There's a God who's gracious enough to remove your sin and your guilt. And he invites you to the deeper pleasure of his purity. He specializes in redeeming pasts that are stained and giving us futures that are bright. He specializes in using the least deserving and the unexpected and to use them for his purpose. Throw your worst at God and watch him be powerful enough to take it and to give you a solution. I'm encouraged by what John Piper says here. He says, listen, the mood of American life today is if it feels good, do it. Forget your guilt-producing principles of chastity and faithfulness. But I say to you, if the stars are shining in their beauty and your blood is thudding like a hammer and you are safe in the privacy of your place and opportunity for impurity comes, stop. Stop for the sake of righteousness. Let the morning dawn on your purity. Don't be like the world. Be like Boaz and be like Ruth. Powerful in self-control because they are committed to righteousness. And then number four, place genuine faith in the faithful Redeemer. Place genuine faith in the faithful Redeemer. The hidden story that's unfolding, that's meant to take our breath away, is really an invitation. And it's an invitation for you and I this morning God wants us to see a picture of his love for his people. And this story is making that clear. It's making clear, even through imperfect means and an imperfect display, like Boaz and like Ruth, it's making clear how it is that God interacts with and loves his people. The whole story is scandalous. Do you know why? Because Ruth has no business as an enemy, as an outsider to God, she has no business being where she's at. And the Bible would make clear that you and I, because 
of what we have inherited from our forefathers. From Adam, from Eve. We have inherited a sin nature. And because of that, we too are born outsiders. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. I would just encourage you this week, read Ephesians chapter 2, read 1 through 10. Read verses 1 through 3 and just see what it means to be born and be at odds with God. Listen to Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had having no hope and without God in the world. That's the reality. This hidden story is pointing to a, it's pointing us to the reality, not just of temporary food, not just temporary family, but eternal sustenance and eternal belonging. And the whole picture, the whole drama that's unfolding between Ruth and Boaz, it's meant to, we're meant to identify with this. There's something about this story where we read it and we say, ah, yes, there's redemption. It's possible. There's a way for someone who doesn't deserve to have the way. And the whole time, that story, it resounds in our souls because that is the story that we were created for. Yes, redemption. Even redemption for the likes of those who born into this world had no hope and do not have God but who long for a home and who long for love. Like Ruth, God has provided us with a redeemer. How will you respond to all of the losses in your life? What will you do with all of the brokenness around you? Will you build walls up? Will you seek to distract yourself with temporary pleasures? Will you step back? Will you seek to gain control to mitigate any future loss? Will you allow anxiety to overwhelm you? I mean, how do you respond to loss and pain that you've endured perhaps because you agreed to love? Are you willing this morning to be vulnerable before the sovereign in full control God who is perfectly good in all that he does? Are you willing to lay your hearts in his hand? Are you willing to say, I have no plan B, I have no escape strategy? That's true faith. False faith begins to provide makeshift substitutes that provide another way out if the thing I'm putting my faith in doesn't work. That's not the faith of, of, the Christian, uh, of Christianity. The faith of Christianity is I'm willing to put everything on Christ. And if he doesn't work, then I'm going down with that. No makeshift substitutes. No, well, if, if, this, if this doesn't work, I'll go this way. True faith gladly allows itself to be stripped of all substitutes. And this is what the Bible and this is what church history will prove over and over again that God has never failed anyone who has put their faith in him. Have you put your faith in God? Not because you're worth it, 
Not because you have anything to offer him, not because you deserve it. Purely on the character of him. Because he's the redeemer. Because he's the friend of sinners. Because he's the great shepherd of the sheep. Because he's the true physician. This is how you come to Jesus. It's what we just sang. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Everything, everything is placed on Christ. And just like Boaz loves Ruth, so God loves his people. And you say, Justin, before I can get there, how do I know that God loves his people? Because this story, there was kind of a complication with the law. The law held up redemption. I just want you to know that you and I have a law problem too. We can't keep the law and so earn the favor of God. And yet, praise be to God, Christ came. And Christ addressed our law problem. He kept the law we couldn't keep. And he bore the penalty that we deserve for not keeping it. And if you're adding up all of this, it makes zero sense to say, wait a minute, he, he gave me what I couldn't earn and he took what I deserved? And the scandalous invitation this morning is yes. And you're invited to know that God by turning from your works and placing your faith and trust in him. The wages of sin is death. And Christ has come to bear those wages. And just as Boaz rose in the morning to go and to address the outstanding matter, so too on the third day Christ rose, showing that there is no complication in the law anymore. It is all finished. He not only conquers sin, he promises eternal life with him. Our Savior doesn't look at his children like the sinners we are. Boaz did not look at Ruth like the foreigner she was. No, to Christ, we are holy without blemish because on the cross he took in his body every, uh, every blemish so that by his wounds our blemishes might be healed. If you're not a Christian this morning, I don't know where you will find a greater demonstration and act of love than this and so I would plead with you turn from your sin and trust Christ trust him today your stained past can be transformed into a bright future and Covenant Life Church he knows you he knows you No more anxiety, no more hiding, no more paralysis over what to do. You have a Redeemer who loves you. And the text is a call to come to God's provision of a Redeemer for you, to lay everything at his feet. And whatever he tells you to do, you do it. If Ruth can trust Boaz with all the risks, how much more shall we let go of everything and trust in our great redeemer the hidden story is meant to take your breath away and it happens when you see the redeemer 
that has come to take your sins away. Let's pray.